This episode of Writing Excuses is brought to you by Audible. Visit audiblepodcast.com slash excuse to start your free trial membership. This is Writing Excuses, Season 6, Episode 4, Microcasting. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Dan. I'm Mary. And I'm in a hurry. Brandon, give me the first one. All right. If you haven't heard one of our microcasts before, this is just us taking Q&As um, and trying to hit a lot of topics very quickly. Don't undersell um, it. It's not just Q&A. It's, it's us addressing us deep topics <laughs> really fast. That I got it's off of Twitter. Um, so question number one brilliance. from Twitter. My latest question, is it still safe to go the traditional pub- publishing route? A lot of things say no. Yes. 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 Okay, why? Mary, why don't you give us a take on this? Because the choice between doing a freaking huge amount of work uh, on your own to, to go the non-traditional route, uh, you would have to cover, um, you know, the layout, the, everything about the book, versus having someone give you money and then do all of that themselves. I would much rather be writing. Yeah, it's... While ebooks and self-publishing is becoming viable, yep. that does not automatically make traditional publishing unviable. Commercial yep. publishing. Commercial publishing. Sorry. I don't yeah. need your pedantry. Um, no, I her, her pedantry is her pedantry is well earned, um, and I'm going to leave it at that. And maybe we'll put it in the liner notes. Yeah, but it's it is worth noting that most people who do, uh, you know, who are electronically published, I mean, not electronically published, who are self-published. self-published are when they still, are, yeah. no, when they are offered a commercial, commercial per, publishing gig, they take it. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. and I think that's I would pretty it, telling. I would take it in a heartbeat. I would take it in a heartbeat. And the only reason I don't is because right now my understanding of the market is such that I know that I can sell to more than ten percent of the niche that a traditional publisher, a commercial publisher, could sell to um, uh, in in print. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in here and just add um, the the counter argument we've talked about before, but let's just say self-publishing electronically is becoming very viable. There's a lot of exciting stuff happening. It is something to look at. It is well oh, worth absolutely. your consideration. Yes. But the question uh, was, is it safe? But is yes. it still safe? Well, yes, it's yes. very let, safe. Let, let me give one one yep. point about why he might be using the word safe. Yeah. Uh, one th- issue that's come to light recently is that. Uh, a lot of publishers are simply not equipped at present oh, yeah. to properly count uh, ebook sales and and, and there measure is them. a big dispute going on and right there, now. It's a big problem yeah. that is only going to get bigger. Yep. I currently am trusting, perhaps naively, that mm-hmm. that the publishers will be able to figure that out in time. Yeah. I will but say that it is a it is a problem. I will say, and I, I cannot go into detail that this problem may be overreported. My um my royalty I do, statements. I would not be surprised. I have not. Um, there's no discrepancy in mine. Yeah. Mine are mine. Yeah. This, we're this we're pretty good be. at tracking these. And um, so anyway, we got to move on. But it is still safe. Both sides are um are legitimate. Listen to both sides on that one. Um, mighty pretty dad asks <laughs> all three of you, and I guess we're going to include Mary now. People <laughs> don't know that Mary's um with us um permanently now. All three of you write serious stories with a lot of silliness. How do you find the balance? Serious stories with a lot of silliness? Yes. How do you find the balance? Um, I would say the balance is dependent on the book I'm writing. Um, I want humor to be a part of every book I'm writing. And silliness is a part of humor. 
Um, if I'm writing a serious book, I let the characters occasionally be silly because people are occasionally silly, but I don't make the context of the book silly. If I'm writing a silly book, I actually make the context silly and allow the characters to be serious when they need to be serious. And so that balance allows me to, to shift back and forth depending on the book. Carol Burnett once said that the key to comedy was that the character must absolutely believe the situation that they are in. Mm -hmm. Even um, though. I, I write scary, horrible, awful things and use humor specifically as a respite and a safety valve and a way for you to like an unlikable character. And so the balance for me comes in uh, just enough. How do I find the balance? If, if too much tension is relieved, then I pull jokes out of it because I still need to maintain that fear. We may need more time to cover this. Yeah. Let's, um, we can we, do a whole podcast yeah. on humor. Um, we've done whole podcasts on humor. Yeah. Let me just say that for me, the balance is I got to have a punchline every day. As long as I'm doing that, any amount of seriousness I can put in the rest of the strip uh, cannot possibly unbalance the humor, <laughs> and so I'm good to go. Okay. Um, MJS Mulligan asks, new writers are often told to work with three-act structure. What are the alternatives? Writing a stupid book. <laughs> <laughs> Howard really likes three-act structure. Not getting I, published. I like three-act structure, but that's because it, it's an easy place to hang my hat. Uh, you can deconstruct the things that I've written in five pieces or ten pieces or uh, you know, parallel structures, any number of ways to mm -hmm. deconstruct what I'm doing. I break it down into three acts because it's convenient for my head. Um, I use a seven-point system, actually, much more so than three-act. Um, and uh, I stole it out of a role-playing guidebook, but uh, I have recently learned that it is a very common screenwriting technique, uh, this seven-point plot structure. So that's something you can look up or look on my blog. I've got a huge post about it. Okay. Well, what's the link the... to the YouTube video? What, what, what would they need to Google? Um, if, if you look up Dan Wells' seven-point story structure... Uh, you can find uh, a five-piece lecture presentation that I did on it on YouTube. That's so not a Rickroll, right? You promise? No. no it's not a, it's not <laughs> it will be, I'm sure, at some point. Mary? I use Erson Scott Card's Mice Quotient. Okay. Um, which is basically that every story, uh, whether short fiction or long, consists of four parts. Uh, milieu, which is the place, idea, character, and event, and how you structure the story depends on which of those elements dominates. Okay, excellent. You can read more about that in um, Scott Card's How to Write Science Fiction and Fantasy. Mm -hmm. And also in Character and Viewpoint. He covers it in both. Um, I use uh, goal-based writing. I start with a goal. I want this to accom be accomplished. And then I work backward with uh, what things need to happen before that goal can happen. And so I do not use three-act structure. Um, I don't think in three-act structure. I can talk about it and analyze it, but I don't use it. Um, I look for motivation, conflict, and how to re resolve them. And, and see, what's funny is I do exactly the same thing. Yeah. I'm goal-based, but then as I am laying out the story, I think, you know, I want this to fall into three parts. And so as things are happening, um, you know, as we are moving towards those goals, I start, you know, filing the actions to one side or the other mm -hmm. of the, the act boundaries. Well, yeah. and... The, the thing that is always fascinating to me is that whether or not you actually use one of these structure systems uh, overtly, it's there anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I don't write in three-act, but my editors do. <laughs> 
And so when I, when, I, when I send stuff off to my Harper editors, they'll send it back and say, this is where Act 2 starts and ends, and this is what we want you to do with it. And they, they know that I don't think that way, so they always point it out to me, so we're speaking Can the same of worms language. we ought to do? We, yeah. ought to take, we ought to take something that Brandon has written in his goal-based stuff, and we ought to deconstruct it in three-act, and then deconstruct it in seven-point, mm. and That'd then deconstruct it in the orthos. To demonstrate that, yeah. that just because you can... Just yeah. because you used a particular tool for putting it together doesn't mean that that's the way the reader That'd is be going a great to perceive episode. it. Right. Can of worms. Remember that one. Yeah. All right. Let's do book of the week. Hey, writers. Are you thinking about learning a new language? I think exploring the world, experiencing other cultures, and being able to communicate with people outside your everyday experience lets you create richer, better stories. A great way to do that is with Rosetta Stone, a trusted expert for over 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. They use an immersive technique, which leads to fast language acquisition. It's an intuitive process that helps you really learn to speak, listen, and most of all, think in the language you're trying to learn. They also feature true accent speech recognition technology that gives you feedback on your pronunciation. It's like having a voice coach in your home. Learn at home or on the go with a desktop and mobile app that let you download and access lessons even when you're offline. And it's an amazing value. A lifetime membership gives you access to all 25 languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Japanese, and, of course, Korean. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Writing Excuses listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today. Dan? Book of the week. Uh, this week we are doing a uh, nonfiction a historical book that I am uh, currently in the middle of called 1421, The Year China Discovered America. Uh, it's a fairly controversial uh, theory that surfaced about 10 years ago. Uh, well, it's been kicked around for a while, but the, the book was written about 10 years ago. Uh, which basically stated that the reason the Europeans were able to uh, sail and discover, quote-unquote, the Americas is because they were using maps produced by the Chinese who had already done it uh, several decades earlier. Uh, the book is by Gavin Menzies. It is available unabridged on uh, Audible. It's absolutely fascinating um, just as a work of uh, historical detective work. All it's right. an amateur historian with a lot of sailing experience who is going through old maps, old records... A lot of hypothesis that he doggedly, you know, finds support for. Uh, whether or not it is true, it is a is absolutely thrilling. So you haven't read. gotten to the end of the book yet. I haven't gotten to the end where so you know, know it turns lives. out that it's actually aliens. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, go head to out it. to yeah. Head out to audiblepodcast.com/slash/excuse. Kick off a 14-day free trial membership. Um, what was the name of the book again? 1421. 1421. The year China discovered America. All right, next question. I'm going to throw this one at Mary because we've answered this before, but I don't, you haven't on the podcast. Uh, Tenacities asks, do you ever lose your drive, and what re-inspires you when you do? That's a really interesting question because I am in a slump right now. Um, <laughs> uh, so, yes, definitely it happens. It's happened before. Um, typically, it will happen for a couple of different reasons, and the first step for getting myself out is to look at why it's happening. Sometimes it's happening because of um, emotional fatigue. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes it's happening because uh, the story is going in such the wrong direction. 
Um, and I just basically have to look step back and examine what is going on before I can figure out how to get out of it. Okay. Um, um, I'm going I'm to yeah. offer one that I have started using. Um, when, whenever I get into some kind of writing slump or I, or I lose motivation per, for a particular project, what I have learned is that if I start a new project in the same area, like I'll start outlining a new book, hmm. that ruins it because then I don't want to go back to the old broken yeah. project. I just want to start the new one. Yep. So what I've started doing is I'll start a new project in a completely different field. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll write out all, you know, I'll design a board game or I'll, uh, you know, do something else. I'll write song lyrics, just anything to get the creativity working again. And I've then once that energized me, I go back and I can get back to my project. I've heard some of these songs. They'd make a great board game. <laughs> All right, Howard, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to toss one at you, okay? Whee! Um, Mew, whatever, Twitter name says, how does your writing life affect your non-writing life? Howard, do you have a non-writing life? I was <laughs> yeah, that's an thing. excellent That's an excellent question. Well, I, I guess it depends on the, uh, you know, where you're drawing the boundary. Um, you know, before... Before this recording session, I wanted to make sure I was well-rested, well and so I laid down for a, a quick power nap. And the moment my head hit the pillow, my brain started running on some story ideas that are unrelated to Schlock Mercenary, but that I, I want to be exploring. Um, and that happens to me all the time. You know, I'll lie down in, I'll lie down in bed and think, uh, okay, what do I want? Do I want insomnia, or do I want to plot something and let my, let my dream self solve it? So, you know, where do you, where do you draw that line? Mm -hmm. I run dialogue when I'm cooking sometimes in the kitchen. And then there are other times when I tell myself, you know what, I have worked hard enough for today. I need to physically, emotionally, mentally distance myself completely with what I was doing. And often that means, you know, going and seeing a movie. And then I come home and I blog about the movie on the website and it crosses the line again. So it's really, it's really fuzzy. What I love is that Almost everything I do now has some aspect of me creating things tied to it, and I'm very happy with that. Um, I'm going to toss another one at Mary, uh, because a lot of these are ones we could go around and all talk on for oh, yeah. five minutes mm -hmm. each. Um, K.W. Ramsey asks, what was the defining moment in your life that said to you, I can do this, I can be a writer? Oh, wow. Um... Seeing Scalzi in the tiara? <laughs> <laughs> no, um, because I, it, it's, I had started writing when I was in high school and then stopped when I, I started doing the, uh, the puppetry thing. And so I stopped writing for about 10 years. And um, I started writing for my niece and nephew because they were in China. But I think the moment, I, I mean, there was a moment when I was looking at it and realized that I had something there. But because I had spent like 20 years in the performing arts, the idea of, you know, creating something and then getting paid for it was a natural progression for me. Yeah. So I just, I immediately jumped to the, well, how do I submit and send? The, the moment that I was like, oh, oh, I, I guess I can, was um, when I, you know, I, I guess I'm, I'm not bad at this, was uh, I sold a story to Cicada. And that was the first magazine that I sold something to that I had read growing up. Uh -huh. And it was so amazing. It was like, this is, this is what those, pe these, these people, I'm like them. Right. 
I just, I actually showed it to the uh, waiter at the restaurant we went to that night. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Okay, Dan. And the meal was free. This no. one is, is targeted directly at you. Oh, wow. Um, D Fix It asks, um, how effective do you feel video book trailers are? Um, you had one. Have you ever had one, Mary? Yeah. Okay. You can, then I'll toss yeah. it to Clearly you. Clearly it wasn't I've that effective. I've never had one. Um, except I guess I had the Wheel of Time one. But I, I'm not going to yeah. count that because Wheel of Time is an outlier. So you too. Um, how effective are they? Yeah, how effective? I really don't know how to measure that, unfortunately. And, and no good metric exists right now, at least as far as I'm aware. I had one. I thought it was really good. And I found it a useful tool to be able to send people. Um, you know, if, if someone was curious about my book in person, I can just give them the pitch online. I can give them the pitch and a link to what I thought was a pretty cool trailer for it. Um, I definitely think that because of the web, book trailers are going to become more and more common. I, I think that, that they're going okay. to be, you know, they're, they're definitely a part of our future. As far as for how effective they are, I don't know of any information on that yet. One of the things you have to look at is uh, the cost versus benefit ratio. Mm -hmm. um, to have a video professionally done is going to cost you about, it's about $250 per minute minimum. Mm -hmm. um, and that's like bare yeah. rock bottom minimum. Most, most trailers that I hear are costing around $1,500, $2,000 for a bare minimum on a book trailer. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, and that is much more realistic. Yeah. Um, the what I did when before Shades of Milk and Honey came out was that I looked at um, the other fantasy books coming out from debut authors mm -hmm. uh, in tour in the same month, and um, so I did a comparison between my book. I watched, I tracked their numbers, and I tracked my numbers, and I cannot see any difference that the trailer made. Mm. You know, I'll be honest. I uh, I don't like book trailers at all. I. I Yours was lovely. I watched, I watched maybe 15 seconds of it and thought, <laughs> oh, this is very attractive, but I hate book trailers. Click. Same with the John Cleaver one. Mm -hmm. I just don't like book trailers. Well, and I can agree. As much as I, as I say I liked mine, I don't like anybody else's. You know, it's, I, it's not I something that I on a look book. at. I get sold on a book because I want to read a book, not because I want to watch a movie. And the experience of selling me a book by showing me pictures is just... It's just foreign to me. That's interesting because one of the deliberate choices we made was to do uh, to not do scenes from the book, um, to treat it very much like a, a movie trailer where it's to give you the feel. But like oh, once yeah. you actually see it, the and, thing and your book trailer was at least in my experience seconds. just guilty by guilty by association. <laughs> no, um, no, but uh, but uh, what I'm saying is that I think that one of the places that book trailers fall down is that they do try to portray yeah. exactly what's happening in the book. Right. Um, it has to be really amazing trailer in order for it to get viral and there's no way to tell when that's going to happen. Right. The only way I would invest in a book trailer is if I thought if the book itself was funny and I thought the trailer itself because funny videos go viral in a way that other videos tend not to. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and if you can sell the spirit of the book in a funny video uh, that could that could work. All right. Um, let's call it for today. Uh, thank you guys for sending in your questions. I'm sorry to all of those we didn't get to. We will do another podcast based on these um, Twitter f responses, but um, if we, there are way more than we It can is a do. rich, rich vein of material. Anyway, um, let's do a writing prompt, um, and let's see. 
Um, I'm actually going to grab one of these Twitter questions <laughs> and turn it into a writing prompt. So uh, Spencer Pager asks, Panger asks, what are your thoughts on using traditional fantasy creatures in writing? Um, so um, my, um, my uh, question for you, my writing prompt is you have to have a story in which people are using traditional fantasy creatures in writing, meaning the actual physical creatures, like you're grinding up unicorn horns and writing hey, with... Hey, 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 or not that using one. I actually blood. do that. <laughs> or you're doing somehow the phys fantasy creatures physically are necessary are involved in the writing in the writing process. Sweet. Book so is big printed thank on you. the finest elf skin. <laughs> yes. Quill is a phoenix. You have to write very quickly and not burn your hands. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this has been writing excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write. <laughs>